Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host, and this episode is brought to you today by our friends at Meet Mindful. Meet Mindful is revolutionizing the way we meet and connect with others in daily life by inspiring people to make meaningful connections every day, both on and offline. Maybe you're looking for long-term love with a partner who shares your core values. Perhaps you just want to meet a new like-minded friend to grab coffee with on a Saturday afternoon. The bottom line, you're looking for people to connect with, people who get you. If you're interested in meeting like-minded people, welcome to your new community and visit meetmindful.com forward slash emerging women and you will start a free trial there. Enjoy it. Today's guest is Reshma Saujani, a lawyer and an activist whose desire to be of public service led her on an unlikely path from an unsuccessful bid for U.S. Congress to founding Girls Who Code. This is a thriving nonprofit and social movement that equips over 40,000 girls nationwide with the skills to pursue 21st century opportunities they may not have thought were available to them. We talk about why it's so important to build resilience in girls and how they largely put their skills to use for community good. No surprise there. We talk about how to fight sexism in tech companies and how to promote diversity in the workplace beyond quotas. And Rashma shares her insights for passionate women who seek to gain influence and power also for public good. This episode is about to get real about colossal failure. I love it when we get real about failure and its potential to take us places we never imagined. It's all part of the Emerging Women ethos, so let's dive in and go deep. Welcome today, my friends, to Brave Not Perfect with Reshma Saujani. Okay then, hello and welcome, Reshma Saujani. How are you? Good, how are you? So good. So excited to talk to you. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you today to talk about an issue that I think we can both agree will have the greatest impact on all of humanity, and that is the issue of empowerment of women and girls. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. You are, I would say, at the forefront right now of the movement to close the gender gap in tech and you started out in law and then politics. So I'd love for you to just give us a background on how you got here. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have an unusual journey to working on the gender gap in, in tech. I'm not a coder. I didn't major in computer science or engineering. I majored in policy science communication. But I came to this issue through politics. I was running for office for Congress in 2010 and saw the gender gap in schools. And I was like, what's going on? You know, this doesn't make sense. And so as I dug in, and as someone who kind of my whole life I've worked on issues of equity for women and girls, as I dug in, I, I learned that we've had this enormous decline of women in technical jobs. So essentially in the, in the 80s, 37% of computer science graduates were women, and today that number is less than 18%. Mm-hmm. 
at a time, right, when women make up the yeah. majority in our labor force and on 40% of all breadwinners. And so I wanted to do something about it and started Girls Who Code as an experiment and said, what if I took 20 girls for seven weeks, brought them to a technology company, uh, learned, taught them how to code, um, what, what, what could happen? Could we change girls' interest in this field? Could we help them build things that would make the world a little bit better? And we found that we could. And so we've grown from 20 girls in 2012 to 40,000 girls by the end of this year. Sweet Jesus. That is yeah. a huge number. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And I feel, well, I want to talk about the politics thing because I also think it's relevant, but you're teaching more than coding for these girls. Yeah. We're teaching them confidence. We're teaching them public speaking skills. I was just in Atlanta yesterday visiting some of our programs there and you know, some of these girls had no exposure to computer science. They all thought it was like this really hard thing that they'd never be able to do. And now it's like they're open sourcing and reading websites like their books, right? Right. Built an enormous sense of purpose, you yeah. know, which is, which is really powerful. Tell me a little bit more about that because, you know, for me, and of course I, I've never even attempted to code. I mean, even our website, I hand that off. And, but I'm curious because to me, there's this sort of perception that coding is math. Is, yeah. that, the, is that the case? No, I think coding is more like computational thinking. It's mm-hmm. about problem solving. Um, I feel like, I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I feel like if I had majored in computer science, I probably would have been really good at it because part of why I went into the law was I like solving problems and I like thinking analytically. So a lot of our girls find they're not that great at math or science, but they're, they love computer science and they're really good at it. So I think it's, again, it's, there's a lot of misconceptions. Right. And I would say it's like, you know, coding's got a bad rep, you know, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what coding is. And I think that's part of why we have been so successful in converting, in converting girls because they come into the classroom, whether it's at a girls who code club or a summer program, and they're like, oh my God, this is so much fun. And they had such low expectations walking in. So critical thinking, thoroughness, dedication, perseverance, detail-oriented, creativity. These are some of the things that are necessary to excel in this area. Is that a good summary? Am I leaving something out? Well, I mean, I'll say, like, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, having, not having a fear of failing. Because mm-hmm. coding is very trial and error. And mm-hmm. it's about failing over and over and over again. I think it's about being creative. I think some of the best, you know, coders are, are also kind of designers and are very creative thinkers and are artists in many ways. So I, I, I don't know if there is, I really believe that anybody can be really good at this. Got it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're somebody who certainly does not have a fear of failure. I mean, I'm so curious to see how your experience was running for Congress, especially as a woman of color, and how that experience, that closeness with failure has informed this whole movement that you're creating now. Yeah, I mean, it was so scary and so euphoric at the same time, so... You know, everything I was doing was, I was doing it for the first time. I've never raised money before for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I had never gone on television before. I had never, you know, 
spoken to a group of senior citizens. I'm, I, you know, I never had my life scrutinized in that way or, or, you know, you know, had my life run by 22 year olds and life built and started the campaign essentially in 10 months. And so there were a lot of firsts and it was really, really, really scary because so much I feel like I tell this lie, but as girls, you know, we're, we're taught to like be perfect and to like practice things and like we don't like to do things unless we know how to do them. And so I had to unteach myself a lot of that mm-hmm. in learning how to be a candidate. And it was the best experience, you know, one of the best experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I failed miserably. I was broke. I was humiliated. I had, like, no contingency plan. I pissed off everybody in the Democratic establishment. And, you know, I picked myself back up, and I kept going. And I always say, you know, like, it's like learning how to fail is like exercising a muscle, mm-hmm. right? It's like the first time you do it, it's really hard. Second time you do it, it gets a little bit easier. Third time, it's a little bit easier. And it's like these really huge colossal failures that have not just colossal in terms of like when you lose a race, it's a big deal, but it it meant a lot to me because I thought that my destiny on this earth was to be in public service. Mm -hmm. And so for me not to be in public service feels, you know, often felt very like I just screwed it all up, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, to live with that and to move on from that, it's it's hard Mm -hmm. and it's something you have to teach yourself. You know, it's interesting that concept of being in public service or actually being in service to, you know, large groups of people like what you're doing now. It comes in many forms. And I think that's really shifting, you know, as we're changing as a society right now. It feels like that opportunity for public service is getting more varied. And the political side just feels like it's more narrow. And one doesn't really, it's not as effective as what you're doing now. Yeah, I would agree with that. It feels that way, huh? I mean, you know, I think for many, I mean, I'm going to be 41 in November. Like, I wanted to go run for office because of Dr. King and Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi and JFK and just, you know what I mean? These incredible public leaders that really used public service and government as a way to bring about change. And I think everything has shifted from that, where you don't see the most kind of often ethical, you know, human, you know, people who are focused on humanity running no. for public office, right? Sometimes, especially it feels like right now in this presidential election, it's the opposite, right? It's people who are talking about hate and fear-mongering, and, and it's also people who are working outside of the system that are working, whether it's in NGOs or even in, in, in the private sector, that are, are kind of leading both the moral and the ethical charge um, in our country. And so, yeah, things feel very split. Yeah, That's why you just I don't need as many young people today that want to run. No, and in fact, yeah, in fact, sad. The, it's sad. It's sad. It, it is, and especially you know, there's a big movement right now. I know in Colorado we're very focused on this, but all over is to have more and more women running for office. And yes, we want that. And I've met a couple of candidates, and we had one of our speakers here, this woman Leslie Harad, and she ended up winning in District Eight in, in Denver. And it was, I mean unbelievable how the whole community reacted but she went through you know i mean it was uh it was (laughs) it's hard out there in the public sector life you know as a politician it's it's brutal and it just does not seem to be getting better but i do feel like the more women just like tech and we'll come back to that but the more women that are involved i think that's the best chance we have of changing this and turning it around 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So back to the bravery versus perfection and the failure concept. I feel that, and again, this this is relevant to tech, but as we discussed, it's also relevant to politics. It's relevant to scientists. I've talked to women scientists that are held back in what they present and their papers and their research and because of the risk of failure and what that means to their career. So I'm curious to see if you're seeing a trend. And again, I don't want to harp on like, how bad things are out there, but especially in tech, things are not great. And there seems to be a double standard around failure. And I'm wondering, you know, if you're seeing that play into why I, I would say women, but also girls might be uh, more risk averse. Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think about them. I don't know if girls aren't taking risks because they feel like they're punished for it. Or mm-hmm. if girls are not taking risks because that feels that there's not something that they have done or have been trained to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I still do think that we celebrate people like Steve Jobs, you know, who failed. And, and we tell these kind of iconic stories of often men, you know, and me, who have failed over and over again. And they, you know, rise out of the dust and the shadows and come to, you know, conquer all and become great. So I think society celebrates that. I think the thing is, is do women feel comfortable doing that into into failing or is it that they don't fail because they feel like there's higher cost to them for failing? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, do I think that, yes, I definitely think we're tougher on women, right? And we have different expectations for them. Um, We're more comfortable with ambitious men than we are ambitious women. We're more comfortable with men, you know, we who aren't very nice, you know what I mean? Or who aren't very empathetic in, 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 in a way that we are not comfortable with that. Uh, when it comes to women. So I definitely think that there are different standards for women. I just, I think the question of like what motivates women to not take risks, um, I think that there's so many and they're all over the map. And I think, but I do believe that um, we can unsocialize that. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot what I would talk about in my, in my TED talk, which is that, you know, I think at a young age, if we're, if we're encouraging girls to take risks and we're telling them to not get on the honor roll, and we're leaving them in the sports, you know, in, in soccer when they're really bad at it, and we're allowing them to feel rejection, and we're building their thick skin, and we're celebrating their failures, I think we can change a mm-hmm. lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do think that we have some socialization to do on the other side, where failure is something that is universal to the human experience, and that I have seen women get more you know, punished more severely or more ostracized or, I mean, look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, and I think that there is... is a, that, but is that... It's a great question. I, mean, I, I don't know if you saw an article about her likability numbers. It's almost though, I don't know if she's punished for feeling or that we like her more when she's failing, right? So when, you know, some of her highest likability numbers were after she lost the race. Right, uh, it's yeah. almost at the lowest. Mo- her lowest moments are when we like her, mm-hmm. um, and it's when she's on top. Right, mm-hmm. we feel like oh, I mean, even this whole kind of thing, like oh, I'm with her, means that she's too ambitious and she's doing this for herself and not for all of us. I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy, right? It's mm-hmm. like crazy mm-hmm. talk. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's I just don't know. I want to, I want to think about that more. Yeah, it's what I've been, you know, just hearing just from professional women is that the window 
is smaller for, and I do think this is changing with the millennial generation. I do think this is changing, but especially women in the old school that are more at the top of their career, their window for failure or for, you know, being challenged, what, there was not a, a wider margin for error um, that they would see their male counterparts Have. having. Yeah. Right. And so maybe it's not failure because that's an extreme word, but maybe it's, it's more of a yeah margin for error. Expectations, yeah. right? Like Ex- if they yeah. were right, if they were going to, we're not going to give you a second chance, and right. maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so you know, one of the one of the things that I super appreciate about your organization is that you're super you're focused on pipeline, and I, I don't know how you feel about quotas or you know, how you, yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit like what your goal is. I mean, is I just did a little, I just did a lot of interview on, on this. Listen, I think, I don't have a problem with quotas. I have goals in my organization and I, I, I don't see quotas as quotas. I see them as goals and if they're quotas, they're quotas. Like I think that we, the problem is so bad when it comes to diversity. Exactly. Uh, that we need to, we need to change the, the way we think about this and the way that we're trying to achieve uh, these metrics. Right. And if quotas is going to help us do a thing, great. Right. Because, I mean, to me, it's like there are so many qualified, exceptional women and people of color that should be in these positions. So it's not like I feel like you're changing your standards, right, to, mm-hmm. to hire them. I think you're just, you're being, you're holding your own stuff accountable. Because I think at the end of the day, people hire, like to hire people who they're comfortable with and mm-hmm. who they see themselves in. And mm-hmm. often that's not women and people of color. Exactly. And this is the issue. I think that people are just, you know, there's so much fear around the quota issue. But as soon as we get over this hump and we just, you know, pack the pipeline till it almost looks like the cantina scene at Star Wars, you know, where everybody's just totally different, then I think that it's not going to go away. It's, you know, I mean, we need to start looking at different faces and hearing different perspectives. Yeah, but oftentimes the people that are the most against quotas are women. Because we oh, feel like we want, right? We feel like we want to be, we want the opportunity because of our merit and not our gender. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it, it, I think sometimes we need to like ourselves think about that, right? Mm-hmm. You know. I think that's a really good point. Right. Yeah. But I mean, once again, this is a such a huge issue and we need to exponentially increase the pipeline. I mean, even the rate that it's happening now, it just feels so slow, like molasses. And I'm curious to see if you have beyond, you know, quotas. And I talk to, you know, people all the time. In fact, one of our tech partners, we're, we're building a platform and they have, I think, 45 developers it's a hundred it's a startup but they're they're really moving fast and they're like we need women coders we need women engineers they're like desperate and on the phone to like hp and big corporations that is the first thing they say and it just the feedback i get is it's just not having fast enough so how can this i mean girls who code is you know such a big piece of this but how can we like double triple the rate that's happening with what what's happening i mean we gotta we gotta get it in schools i mean yeah there's i mean we are i think look we are going to reach forty thousand girls ten thousand women graduated ncs almost 90 percent of our graduates are going on to major in computer science so we're we're going to close the gap but to me, it's about how do we get every single girl access to a computer science education, and we need 
we need support from, you know, from government, from the policy sector, from, you know, to really get it in every single school. And even from a resource and funding perspective, it's hard, right? right? And foundations are not focused on this yet. You know, there's incredible corporations that are, that are, that are, but, you know, you need more people really being, really committing to this issue and putting, putting money and resources behind it because it can happen. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's what's so, I think, powerful about, our, I often say, you know, even now as we're thinking about computer science for all, you know, we should be thinking of it in the lens of how do we get it to women and people of color first? Yeah. Right, because what will happen is the default will be boys, and they'll make it you know, not mandatory. For example, you know, end up in the wealthiest schools, and, 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 and you will deepen the gap. Because right now, it's at a place where it's manageable. That you know, we need everybody to be learning how to code. And mm-hmm. I often tell my girls, it's like you know, only one out of ten American high schools offer CS. So like, you're lucky. Like, you're one of the few mm-hmm. in this country that are getting this education. And women are getting it first, mm-hmm. especially the way we teach a girls to code. Like we are producing software professionals. You know, this isn't like tinkering with code. Right. So, but that's not changed because people are all waking up to that this is an important thing. And I want to make sure that, you know, our, almost our most vulnerable get it first, get that education first rather than our most powerful. Because if our most powerful get it first, it will just deepen the gap. Mm, this, that's a huge point. What is the benefit, in your opinion, of getting more girls and women into the coding arena? It's just that, to me, it's the solutions that they're going to create. Like, I was, again, you know, in Atlanta, and, like, some of their projects that the girls had built, they had built a machine learning tool to help identify where Zika is going next. Mm -hmm. They had built a game called the Game of Justice to help um, Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, and the way that they can communicate. They had built, um, you know, a tool, a GPS tool to help people who are blind be able to, you know, navigate the streets uh, and walk without feeling like they're kind of coming to... I mean, you know, all again, idea after idea after idea was about their community, their world, people who are vulnerable, supporting them, supporting social issues, creating equity. Like, this is what we do as women. Right, we're change agents, and that's why all girls need to learn how to code. Is because the problems that we're going to be are, are going to, that we're going to solve are just going to be so important, and we're not going to solve them without women. We're yeah. just not going to find a cure to cancer without women. We're just not. We're not going to do it. And so, if you leave them behind, if they're not at the forefront of innovation and technical innovation, then we're just we're moving out. Right. What about women? I'm curious to see, you know, what's fabulous, once again, about Girls Who Code is you're getting girls early. And, and we discussed this, how, you know, you're, you're working with a population that's not exactly, you know, desiring, desiring this because they're reacting against something. They're kind of fresh. They haven't probably experienced yet some of the, uh, the gender biases that older women do experience in the workforce. I'm curious to see if you have any way to or any ideas for women that are I would say that they're in their 30s to early 50s that are in tech now and how can we use some of the principles that you're uh, imparting to your girls for those women well they should learn how to code you know I don't think it's ever too late especially kind of learning the basics so they can communicate and feel like they can communicate with people around them 
There's great mm-hmm. organizations like Women Who Code, um, Dad Boot Camp, you know, uh, Flat Iron School, General Assembly that are kind of giving, you know, boot camp courses. That. Um, so I think that, that that's really, really critical. I mean, technology is going to be part of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. I, was getting my, I was getting, you know, my hair done a couple of weeks ago, and this woman, Jasmine, was telling me how she wants to start her own salon. And she said, I'm worried because I don't know about the accounting. I have to go to my website. And, you know, oftentimes we as kind of budding entrepreneurs won't go start that company or won't go do that idea because there's 10 things we don't know about the business. Mm-hmm. So I don't want a woman to ever not create or build something because she doesn't feel she has the technical know-how mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. And that often in today's world is the number one reason why women say they won't build a, an app or a solution that they have. Right. So I think it's important for all of us to have that that knowledge, yeah. that confidence. That yeah. What about the women that are coders? I mean, I'm seeing, you know, there's drop off in attrition. Huge. Yeah. It's amazing. It's getting worse. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. It's getting worse. We, we had to, we had to fight the, the sexism that's, you know, a part of some of the culture and tech companies. Yeah. And, you know, I believe that we do it through infiltration, which is why I'm trying to build the pipeline. So there's yep. just lots and lots of women. We got to build community, which is what we do at Girls Who Code, connect women to one another. We have to, you know, find our voices and hold people accountable. We need to highlight the companies that have great culture and warn others about the companies that have bad culture. There's a lot we have to do there. A lot. Right. How closely are you working with the organization after you've placed your girls on these issues? That's a great question. I mean, we are working with them and identifying um, opportunities for our girls. So I don't want to teach a bunch of girls to code, and then these companies don't hire them. That's like my nightmare. So, right. you know, we're getting commitments and making sure that there's a pipeline. And I think that our girls, once they're in those places, are really serving as kind of voices on the, on the culture issue. And I think we need to think more deeply how we can play a role in, in some of that. Because we, we, we want to be a part of that change. Yes. And I think part of it is through community. And I think we're learning as more of our students are having internships there, working there, because how is the culture here? Like, what are the changes that we can make? What are the recommendations? Are there places that we don't want to work with? You know, because we're not seeing those changes happen. So I think there's a lot we can do there. Yeah. I mean, I definitely love what you're saying about community and bringing women together. You know, I know it's an issue of, you know, yeah, men, and it's sort of like black lives matter, but all lives matter. Okay. It's a women's issue, but it's all, you know, it's men and women, but there's something that happens when women get together, especially women of like mind, let's say coders or women in engineering, women in science that can have a shared experience and, you know, gain confidence. And that community is so powerful. I mean, you know, we're in the middle of a, of oh, a yeah. few social movements here. Yeah, it's huge. And there's knowledge sharing too, right? Yeah. Like you can get a job at Twitter if you only have a 2.8. Like it's, it's so much of it's like, I know for me, you know, I didn't take opportunities when I just didn't have the information. I didn't know the rules. Yeah. And so when one girl gets in and she knows the rules, she can share that with other girls. It's so important. And, and, and community is really important. I think make people feel like they're not alone and they can stand up to themselves without repercussions because they have a, you know, a movement of young women who are standing up with them. I mean, one of the, our biggest priorities are building community. And I think it's, it's always just blows me away 
Um, and I think that's what's so special about Girls Who Code is that it is a movement. Like these young women are a part of something. Yeah. And feel a part of something. And you see it so deeply. Yeah. And I think they're going to take that spirit to wherever they go, whether it's in industry, whether it's in government, whether it's through entrepreneurship, and bring that spirit and that leadership and that chutzpah. You know what I mean? To bring, to bring that little change to, to wherever they're at. Yeah. Definitely. What about entrepreneurship? It seems like a lot of your focus is on larger corporations, which is great. I mean, obviously, we've got 40,000 girls through here. That's hard to happen on one-offs, you know. Um, but uh-huh. what is the desire among your girls for entrepreneurship versus going into a, a corporation or, or like a healthy startup? Working for themselves, creating their own product. Um, you know, we want them, look, I mean, I think while we partner with companies to build classrooms there, I think we want our girls to actually, to be entrepreneurs. I want them to build the next Facebook or Uber or Instagram or Snapchat. Yeah, um, word. And so it's not, and I, I want them to go to government and, find, you know, solve the, you know, help undocumented students fill out their DACA forms and, you know, work on gun reform and smart technology. There's so much. So I don't want them just to go work at Facebook, Right. Yeah. Um, I want them to use their technical skills to do whatever they want that's going to make this world better. Yeah. And what percentage of, of your girls are actually going off and wanting so, that? Or, yeah. Yeah. And so in 2012, we only have 20 girls. Every year we're growing at 300%. So we have our first class of like, you know, 20 girls that are seniors right now. Right. So it's uh-huh. like every year we're exponentially growing. So I feel like in a couple of years, we'll know how many of them actually go into industry and where. I think in two to three years, we'll have a critical mass that have graduated. We'll be able to, to do that. We're still too young. Yeah, got it. And what is the max age? Rising juniors and seniors in high school, and then our clubs, we teach girls as young as middle school. Got it. Wow. Okay. That's pretty young. That's where it needs yeah. to happen. That's, yeah. So we've talked about this. You are a social movement leader, it's funny when you were talking about, you made that list of Gandhi and, and JFK and half of your list were people that were working outside the, the government public sector. And so you're in this position, you're a woman, you're a woman of color. There aren't that many women of color or women in general that are leading huge mega social movements like this. And I applaud you for that. I mean, it's just fucking amazing. And it's inspiring to so many. And I feel like the women around me and within the emerging women community, I would say everybody wants to create this level of influence and power. And I'm curious as somebody who really has been, I feel like, you know, karmically born for this. What insight can you give to women who might be on the beginning of a journey to starting, you know, who, who have these aspirations like you do to really move tens of thousands of people and have impact across, you know, global, the vision can't, it's just not, the world is not big enough for the vision, so to speak. Yeah. Well, so I think I've always just been guided by passion, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just very moved by my girls and Mm -hmm. I see myself in them. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to, I want to do some good. And when, I think when you're led by that, the rest of it just kind of comes. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is, is I am relentless about scale. 
So trust me, there are a lot of people at Boca who are like, that's just crazy, right? Like we can't do that many clubs this year. We can't do that many summer programs this year. We can't raise that much money this year. And I push and I push and I push and I push, which means sometimes I'm not always loved, right? Sometimes and I got to fight my position, right? And mm-hmm. I got to push people along with me. And it's, and it's hard. And, you know, it's funny, I just had a baby two years, um, you know, he's 17 months. My, I, was, I saw my girlfriend yesterday. She said, it's crazy. I feel like you're going even faster after motherhood. Wow. And, and I, and in some ways I feel like I, I have been. Like, I don't, I, I know that I'm also in a time where people are paying attention mm-hmm. and I'm pushing myself spiritually, mentally, physically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that's not sustainable, right? But it's a moment and I'm conscious of that moment. So, so I don't, you know, I don't like to do small things and I, I never not. give up. And well, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not always easy mm-hmm. for myself or others around me. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think it's, I think, I think that I'm very clear about what I'm on this earth to do and mm-hmm. why I'm doing it mm-hmm. and where I want to go. Um, but at the same time, I feel like this maybe is hard being 41. It's like, I don't care about being liked in the same way I did in my 20s. You know what I mean? I am like really clear about like the impact that I want to make. Yeah. I am secure with myself. Like I hire people who are smarter than me. You know, I, there's just, there's so much, right? That yeah. I've learned. So along those lines, how are you taking care of yourself? What are you doing? What are some of the practices, some power practices that you do to stay juicy and rejuvenated and also present and available? Yeah, I meditate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really trying to spend hours on the weekend turning my phone off. I, you'll often see me with a photo with my son. Like, I know if it's more than, and I, I'm probably on a plane two to three times a week, unfortunately, right now. Right. And if I'm gone for more than 48 hours, I bring him. So I know that I, he's like my security blanket a little bit. Right. Like, I know, like, when I went on a daily show, like, he's, like, there in the green room at Trevor Noah. Like, he's there with me at Ted. You know what I mean? He's there with me at some of the moments where I'm the most scared. Um, and, and I, I just, you know, I, I feel like I bring him and my, that chaos into, you know what I mean? Into yeah. my, into my world and other people's world. And that's, that's okay. It's okay. I mean, he's watching you and he's absorbing that and he's part of the movement too. So it's, it's fabulous that he's a boy too. He's going to get all of yes, us. Yes. No, totally. Yeah. He's going to get all of it. He's definitely learning everything by osmosis. Yeah. Well, Rashma, thank you so much. We're super excited to have you. This has been an honor, like I said, and just a real treat. And I I just so appreciate our audience, really appreciates the work that you're doing. You're at the front line. We know it's hard, but know that you're really supported and anything that, that we can do to help. And I have a couple of ideas, but thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Um, It was great talking to you. Okay. 